Welcome to Big Data Small Talk, where we take the vast and complex world of data and break it down to bit-sized accessible conversations. Each episode is featured by leaders in the fields of data science, AI, or data engineering, as we explore the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities around data. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get started. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. I see a lot of faces here already. And this is Big Data Small Talk. We have something very special for today's episode. If you're someone building with LLMs or want to start building with LLMs and perhaps is thinking about implementing LLMs at your own company, this episode is for you. And our goal here is to give you as much knowledge as we can around the new updates in the industry how to optimize LLM so you can have a great user experience, how, how to help you decide the type of LLM you should choose for your application, for your needs, or getting it to production in a reliable way, or even maybe if you should use LLM for your application or just maybe a simple machine learning model does the trick. So these are our main topics today, and we have the most amazing people to share this expertise with us here. And we can start with Shubham. So <laughs> you're not new to Big Data Small Talk Spaces, right Shubham? And you're obviously an expert when it comes to AI and machine learning. So thank you so much for being here. Of course, thank you. Thank you Shabrina for having me. Hey everyone, thank you for joining the space. Brief introduction. My name is Shubham. I have been working in this LLM space or machine learning space for the last three to five years, especially interested in exploring LLMs for the last three years since GPT-3 got released. I've also published a book on GPT-3, which is more about a technical and a business manual, which walks you through, uh, which basically touches this topic, what we are going to discuss here, how to decide what LLMs to choose, open source, proprietary LLMs when you want to build an application, what are the business implications, what are the technical implications, and how to uh, how to go through that process of deciding LLMs, where to deploy them, the services that you can build on top of it, and how to make or run a business on top of it. Right now, I am working as a head of developer relations for Tenstorrent. Tenstorrent is a company that is building AI hardware for models of today, which is like large language models, transformers, and the bigger, more, bigger and bigger models that we are going to see now. There would obviously be a need of hardware that is specialized to run these models because in later in the space, we are going to discuss about the cost implications of LLM. That becomes one of the deciding factors of whether you go with open source or whether you go with a proprietary service. I'll, I'll stop here and let the next speaker introduce themselves. I love it. No, yeah, thank you for the introduction. And Shubham also happens to have the best daily AI newsletter, everyone. So Unwind AI is also very active here on Twitter, posting interesting tips, facts, everything related to AI. So I do recommend you guys to check it out. Next up, we have here on the panel someone I was very also very excited to talk about this topic. He is the director of product engineering at Risk Thinking. Yuzi King, I'm bringing up on you on stage right now. Okay, I'm waiting for him to come on stage. Right now we can go to Mayo. 
He is an expert in building AI chatbots for your own data or fine-tuning them for any data that you want, which is one of the major use cases we can see people using LLMs for these days, right? So he has some major tips on his Twitter account as well. He's always sharing his knowledge, best practices for building with AI. Pleasure to have you here, Mayo. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone and your work with LLMs? Hey. Yeah. Can you... yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I thought it was addressed <laughs> to me. My bad. Oh, no. no. So- sorry, Leo. I just skipped you because we were getting you on stage. I see. No, I heard uh, it. I will get back to you soon. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> All right, cool. Yes. Hi, Sabrina. Nice to meet you and everyone else. My name is Mayo. And uh, yeah, I specialize in building AI chatbots for custom data. So whether that's websites, documents, databases, APIs, the, the whole point is integrating AI into you know an existing business system. I kind of, my profile kicked off a bit more on Twitter when, because I was predominantly helping out early on with Langchain as an early contributor and early kind of dev relations and, you know, just kind of sharing my thoughts along the way and sharing YouTube videos and, and just different tips to help people chat with data. And uh, yeah, basically being also posting as as things have evolved in terms of introducing open source alternatives and, and how does that change the ability of the model to, for example, perform retrieval to get relevant information from a corpus of text or data source you have. So that's really why I specialize in is, is this kind of intersection of the AI, the model and, and retrieval augmented generation to effectively you know, create these chatbots for, for data sources. So I'll be very interested to hear from the other speakers as well and also learn. Yeah, we're very excited to have you here today. Obviously, amazing expertise that you have on the topic of actually building chatbots. Another person here today, I was introducing you guys earlier, is Leo. He is Director of Product Engineering at Risk Thinking. Risk Thinking is revolutionizing climate and helping large companies, enterprises manage their climate risk and help climate change. And they're also one of our dear partners at Chikudo as well. So, Leo, please tell us a bit more about yourself, your work at Risk Thinking, and what are you doing with LLMs over there? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the introduction. And sorry about the intrusion just now. Just got the Twitter space thing working for the first time. And hi, everyone. As Sabrina introduced, Risk Thinking is on the as the front runner for basically providing risk assessment and risk management analytics based on climate change data. And so in in this space, we actually already have a lot of very interesting and very cutting edge models and algorithms built to actually provide these insights and values to our customers. So the, the, uprising of generative AIs really is a huge opportunity to synergize with all of this. So my focus here has been trying to productize our proprietary models and data analytics through the use of any means, which includes in this case, LLMs to facilitate powerful storytelling and provide meaningful insights 
in as efficient uh, in an efficient way as possible to our end users. We're still building toward it, but the potential seems to be huge. And of course, I'm as well very eager to learn along in this in this space、uh, opportunity from subject experts. Thank you again. Amazing. Yeah, we're gonna have you talking a little bit more about that as well. I'm excited to learn more. And last but not least, another person I'm thrilled to have here today, Sai, my coworker at Shakuto, an amazing machine learning engineer and product advocate for us. It's been a blast working with him for the past few months and building stuff together. And this is our first spaces together as well. Sai and Leo's first spaces. So very excited. And I would like to. Would you like to introduce yourself, Sai, for everyone? Hey, yeah.、Uh, thanks for that introduction, Sabrina. Yeah, I'm a machine learning engineer at Shakudo. Currently, I'm working on building some use cases around ML and LLM on Shakudo platform. Recently, I was fine-tuning some open-source LLMs, which are like commercially usable for specific use cases where you can't really use them on the fly. The open-source LLMs and the data can't be exposed to OpenAI APIs as such, and Also, I'm working on deploying LLMs and creating a inference platform on Shakudo to make sure that the, I mean, requests are handled and scaled up when the 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 requests are huge. And before my job at Shakudo, I completed my masters at University of Montreal, affiliated with Mila Cubic AI. And yeah, I'm excited to be part of this discussion, hoping to learn different perspectives. Thanks. Yeah, we have amazing different backgrounds here. I'm also very excited and just jumping right into the questions. Our first first goal here is to share the news, the updates, the improvements happening in the space that people might not be aware of, and aware of the speed that everything's happening. Right. So, for example, when we look at Midjourney, one year ago, a prompt that would generate a completely This figured image of a woman or just、uh, a cat or an animal now generates perfect, high-quality, detailed images. It, in this just one year span, we can see amazing improvements in AI. And I'll try to post a picture here on the comments so you guys can see what I'm talking about. But I want to know from the speakers if you can share some of the advancements that have been happening in the areas of like. The training data, or maybe the model architecture and hardware, and which the which one of these things have allowed these investments to happen, and where are you expecting for all of this to happen so quickly? I guess we can start with Ubham, and since you're so into the news and improvements area, would you mind kicking us off for this first one? Sure, sure. <laughs> that's 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 a very interesting question, and I'm I'm a bit confused. Like where to start? Like so many things are happening every day. Like yesterday, Cloudy got released. Like Anthropic released its second version of language model, second generation of language model, Cloudy two, and it's similar to Core Interpreter in the sense that it lets you upload a code file 
like you can upload a python file or javascript file and can just analyze the code and come up with something that you would want to add let's say you have a static image in your code and if you wanted to animate or generate videos out of it the basic example it can do it look at your code just like a human reviewer and come up with a new code script that can that can just run out of the box and other things it can do is like you 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 can upload a pdf it automatically extracts te- text out of it so the sheer capabilities of these models and how they are improving and the pace of it just keeps amazing just keeps amazing just amazes me every day the day before i read this article where unofficially some details of gpt4 got leaked and i was amazed by just looking at the sheer size of gpt4 which is supposed to be like 1.8 trillion parameters so if you look at the mod- if we just talk about the model architecture how they've improved in the last 3 years when gpt1 got released it was somewhere around 117 million parameters gpt2 they just it just got 10x like the parameters got 10x it's like 1.5 billion parameters in gpt3 just made it 100x like 175 billion parameters so the sheer number of parameters that's increasing the model size that is increasing in such a short time and in 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 the given time span just keeps amazing and the capabilities that it brings the new capabilities that it's bringing to the table is sort of insane if you haven't tried out i would highly recommend to just try out the open ai score interpreter model it has got a lot of good applications that you that, that you will be amazed with and ai tools like every day there's like hundreds of ai tools that's getting launched shabrina was talking about midjourney how it can generate a perfect image now but now we have text to video tools which is like from runway where you can just input a text prompt and it will come up with a video in like less than 30 seconds so these these advancements just uh, just keeps coming at at at, at a very these advancements just keep coming at a very rapid pace and just keeps amazing me absolutely and i just shared actually the picture i was talking about on the comments if you guys want to check it out the difference is absurd and... oh that's it <laughs> yeah it's like a picture generated by a 5 year old and a picture generated by a professional artist that's the difference I know I it, it's crazy that we can do that in one year and it, it makes us wonder what's going to happen a new from now right and as you said we already have seen text to video we already seen amazing translations happening live things happening on like Google Meets I love seeing the Google Meets video where people just are like in a way in the AI transforms them in a completely different way live so that's also amazes me Anyone wants to add from from the other speakers please raise your hand if you want to add anything to what Shabham just said around the recent advancements and what have allowed them for, to happen so quickly if you're new to twitter spaces you can raise your hand on the heart plus emoji and it's the last one so let let's see if you guys can can do this real quick all right go go ahead Leo Hey yeah I'm just trying that but uh, yeah I think What's been in, really interesting that we have seen or at least to me is old news is the reinforcement learning with human feedback which got OpenAI truly ahead of their game right at the time and even now but 
fast forward to now, I think, or to more recently, that also kind of sparked the community to find better alternatives, whether be it you know less instruction pairs, such as recent paper that I I read named "Less is More Alignment Lima," where apparently the, the researcher was able were able to use about a thousand curated instruction pairs that put up a fair game against ChatGPT 3.5, of course, versus what some other models such as Alpaca, which both are fine-tuned against Meta or Facebook's Llama, where Alpaca used, I believe, more than 50,000 instruction pairs, but ultimately generated through ChatGPT itself. But both methods were kind of inspiring in, in the sense that people and researchers are recognizing the importance of the instruction fine-tuning where it actually can unlock the potential and usefulness of this base language models. But also on top of that, I think, I think as, as Shubham just mentioned, the size of these models are getting bigger and bigger. So the other front that's been really exciting to me has been the other, the, the, the focus on pushing toward making these models smaller and more cost-efficient, cost-effective to fine-tune or even infer, right? Like long ago, someone tweeted to ship a quantized llama-based model on a, on a Raspberry Pi. So that, that was generally also amazing to see. So I look forward to that front to actually advance as well. And it seems to be actually picking up momentum. So eventually, I think we could foresee a world where these models, these large language models aren't so large anymore, but still capable enough that can reside on our local devices that can do so-called edge computation to drop the cost, but also would be an effective answer to some of the concerns such as privacy fronts and whatnot. Yeah, that's, that's my two cents. Yeah, it's been amazing, honestly, to see smaller models each time more powerful. And, you know, you, you never know how fast this is going to happen. But obviously, yeah, I guess just releasing it to the public and letting people play with it have been really majorly paying off and fine-tuning. And I think it's it's a great point there, Yuzi. Okay, Sai, go ahead. Yeah, adding to that, I just, I mean, I just read about some techniques and applied them for fine-tuning an open-source LLM, like parameter-efficient training, PEFT and QLORA, where, like, you extract just uh, certain trainable parameters or certain layers of the LLM and say, like, you just extract... 0.1% of the Falcon 7 billion parameter model. That will be just 7 million parameters. And you can fine tune that on a small T4 GPU as well for your use case. And basically this will be like, this will make it more accessible to use cases where you can't really use, like, I mean, the model cannot understand the prompt easily. And you, if you have training data, then this can be useful for fine-tuning like larger language models as well. Great point. Shabham, please go ahead. 
Yeah, following up on these two points that Leo and Sai mentioned, right? First, I'll go through the very interesting research that I came across. I was reading this research paper, which was LLMs lost in the middle. So it was very interesting to find out how LLMs depict human nature or how they work very similarly to humans. So the paper was focused on how the context get gets lost when you put the relevant information in the middle of your prompt. So the performance of LLMs or a language model is highest when the relevant information appears either at the beginning or at the end. This is very similar to how we humans process information. When somebody tells you a paragraph, you'll either remember what the person said like in the beginning or in the end. Like That's what our attention is mostly focused on. So it's 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 very surprising and it's 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 very interesting to see how LLMs also resemble the behavior which is very similar to humans. So that, that was an interesting insight and very interesting read. I would highly recommend. It's called Lost in the Middle: How Language Models Use Long Context uh, Context. And there's a very nice graph where you can see how the performance goes down based on where you put the relevant information in your prompt. So that's that's a must read. I would say very interesting. Another thing that was really exciting to me when it comes to fine-tuning techniques, which Sai was talking about, which was these parameter-efficient fine-tuning, they completely changed the game. So before, if you had to do full fine-tuning, I'll just give you an example and put some numbers to have a better context around it. So let's say to fine-tune a Falcon, a Falcon 40B, you to do a full fine-tuning, you would need six A100 GPUs, and the time it would take is nine hours on a six A100 GPUs. But when you use these parameter-efficient fine-tuning, which is LoRa or adapter methods, what they basically do is they freeze the layers of the models, they freeze all the layers of the models, and adds one or two extra layer, and only those weights get upgraded. I'm just going through it in very high level but feel free to look at it in technical detail look at the technical details if you're interested those are very interesting techniques so what it does is from six a100 gpus and the time of nine hours using techniques like lora and adapter methods you can just reduce the fine-tuning time to one hour on a single a100 gpu that's significant reduction in the compute cost and that significant reduction in the time it takes to fine-tune a, a large language model and the best part here's the kicker the performance of those models is exactly the same either of the fine-tuning technique you would use the performance remains intact and in some cases these parameter efficient fine-tuning perform much better than a full fine-tuning method so we have made some tremendous advancements when it comes to fine-tuning yeah that's that's very interesting thing to look at yeah well, my mind is, is completely blown. And if you could link the first, I think, article that you mentioned on the comments, I, I, that's actually a read that I, I would Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll link to that. I'll link to that research paper in the comments. I'll do that. Amazing. Thank you. Mayo, go ahead. Anything to add here? Yeah, I mean, the first thing was to add to what Shiva mentioned, this paper, which I also read. My takeaway was slightly different in the sense of it just kind of, to me, squash the whole debate of the importance of the retrieval and using basically retrieval augmented generation versus context window. There's been a debate going on about as context windows of models increase, would we still need to use 
you know, similarity search of relevant docs and passing context or using vector stores to augment the model and basically generate a response. If it can all fit in the context window, then there's no need for that stuff. So, so I, my, my takeaway from that paper was more a sense of, yes, it's good that we're increasing the context window, but we're still probably going to need to perform retrieval and uh, embeddings and so on and so forth. So that's the, fir- that's the first thing. The second thing was, to me, the recent function calls from OpenAI, which effectively, if, if anyone here hasn't used, is you know what, what the whole point behind that is to effectively allow the model to be more autonomous in its, in its decision-making, provide function descriptions to the model, and the model can decide based on the user's query you know, what particular function to call that you define and, and what arguments to pass to the function. To me, that's probably the way I, my takeaway from that was more an indication of moving towards kind of fine-tuning this autonomous behavior into the model, that this is what they are kind of moving towards and also what probably other potential competitors are moving towards is the reduction of the need for prompt engineering. And again, this is another contentious discussion, but... It does appear to me that OpenAI is fine-tuning or will continue to fine-tune to reduce the need for prompt engineering. So the future of prompt engineering also is something to be discussed. How useful is that going to be in the future if there's going to be continuous fine-tuning? So the reason I'm saying this is because when I was working with Langchain, we would, there was a lot of time spent on the prompts using React frameworks or whatever for, for these Langchain agents that are basically what OpenAI functions are doing right now. But the, the difference is there's no prompts. You just basically query and under the hood, it's been trained on you know a lot of examples of queries to kind of arguments kind of thing. So I think that's another thing that's been very interesting to see in an advancement that seems to me to be a reduction in the need for the developer to effectively you know, do the whole prompt engineer. That's actually I think you can go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I so that's that's a very interesting point that you raised, Mayo. And so when it comes to prompt engineering, I've been hearing like both the sides of it. Like there are like two sides to coin. One is where People go and say prompt engineering is here to stay. It will be the career of the future. People people are developing courses on prompt engineering, how to efficiently do prompt engineering, and all these things. Other side that I heard is like completely the opposite. Can, so this the other take is of prompt engineering as a bug in our progress towards AGI. So as models get better and better, the need for prompt engineering will just go away, which Mayo was just referring to. So this this is an ongoing debate, debate. But what I personally think is, of course, as the systems become better and better, as we move towards AGI, prompt engineering would go away. But in in the short duration of in the short span of let's say two to four years prompt engineering would still be relevant. So in a short duration, it's here to stay. Long term, I don't really think so because systems will become more and more efficient. It doesn't really matter 
what you specify in prompt right it's it's it becomes more casual it becomes more friendly the idea is to make an ai with whom you can talk just like your friend so if you look at it like that need for prompt engineering has to go to make the systems more efficient to make the user experience more efficient these are the two sides to it and it's important to think about both of them and supporting to have context of both of them i really don't like to just, i i don't really like to both both have their pros and cons and in in a short term i believe prompt engineering is here to stay but long term ideally it it, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be because systems have to become more efficient and yeah more advanced yeah but the short short term for us in this industry is like one week right i mean that's <laughs> that's that's what we would want to believe but i i still think it's 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 quite some time since till we get rid of prompt engineering because it has been there since gpt3 gb3 is when it got into existence and like 2 3 years down the line prompt engineering still makes sense today even with gpt4 or any other advanced models so i don't really think that it will be going anywhere in next year or two i might be wrong i would be happy if i w- i was wrong and if we get more advanced system in a week <laughs> or before that but who knows all right if you guys want to know the article they are discussing right now is the one linked shimham linked on the comments and you can check it out it's actually a super interesting one i'm going to save this one for later and yeah thank you thank you guys for taking the mic i kind of dropped to hear my microphone kind of bugged <laughs> but honestly i i love the discussion and i think right now jumping to the second question i have for you guys here it's about strategies that have been used or that you used or that you see people using that helps implement llms in a cost effective way in a fast way so my question is have you faced any challenges in implementing llms and how did you basically overcome them leo i know that you've recently published an article for risk thinking and i'll leave the link for that also here on the comments but the article talked about how you guys made your web app navigational assistant called risk pilot five times five times faster and 20 times cheaper and maybe you can kick us off on this question and talk about how you did that and and the challenges to to do that and just the the overall article yeah yeah happy to and i thought it was highly relevant to what was just discussed about prompt engineering in general and i'm i'm not taking really taking sides on that but agi definitely sounds cool so i look forward to that prospect so to to start with that question i think the general strategy that we take on how to implement or or leverage large language models in a timely and cost effective way is to it's just simply peel the onion right first to try to exhaust the possibility through prompt engineering against an existing model so prime target you know surprise price gpt uh, whether it's 3.5 or 4 Now before June 13, their June 13th update, probably the only choice at least for our use case was GPT-4 because that was the only accessible model 
that allowed system steerability, which truly is the another kind of seemingly small but really, I would say, smart way of exposing prompt engineering in a controlled or semi-controlled way, which could enable us in the use case where, which boiled down in our case is very similar to their recent function calling feature is just to translate users' natural language asks or queries into structured parameters, right? Or in JSON formats. So, you know, just to hypothetically speaking, if prompt engineering after exhaustion of trying and leveraging any techniques, system steerability or not, does not really satisfy the use case, then I think the next kind of stage is fine-tuning. Now, function calling feature from OpenAI is actually a fine-tuning, fine-tuned feature based on, I, I guess, the prominent use case that many makers and companies and organizations have come to that conclusion because it seems to be very low-hanging in doing basically function calling or steering on my existing program by just feeding in inputs, right? But based on natural languages. So uh, their approach seems to be in the right direction. And that's why I said, I look forward to that AGI prospect, but also I agree for now, it's not good enough, at least based on our benchmark, based on our actual use case, it seemed that the function calling feature uh, fine-tuned through a bunch of learning data, obviously GPT or sorry, OpenAI won't really release those, doesn't seem to actually do the job for us. But what's actually working for us right now is to leverage the system steerability now opened up for GPT 3.5 after their June 13th update. So that's what fundamentally cut down that cost and latency. So it's now, so the, the biggest challenge for us was that after getting a satisfactory prompt engineering working with GPT-4 prior to June 13th update, the latency was what's killing that use case because for everyone here, I'm sure you won't be tolerating 10, 20 seconds wait time when you just say, show me where Toronto is, and you wait for 10 or 20 seconds for the map to actually point to you where it is. During that time, I could just drag the map myself. So after that, after the June 13th update, the, the system steerability enabled it. But the fundamental concept of that prompt engineering through system steerability was truly fascinating. And that's what's enabled our use case here. But as I said, if that doesn't satisfy you, then proceed to fine-tuning. And then only if that doesn't even satisfy you, probably try training your base model yourself. But that's really costly most of the time. Yeah, that's amazing advice. And honestly, it's, it's great to see how you guys actually built this and, and how, how great it's working right now. Now... I think we can go over and Mayo, could you share also, I know that you also built a lot of chatbots and, and have a deep knowledge in that. 
what are your strategies to actually implement them in a fast and cost-effective way for the clients in, in a way that it also has low latency and people are happy with the end result? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question, especially with the chatbots, because typically you're dealing with retrieval, which I spoke about earlier. Maybe the client has, you know, 2,000, 10,000 PDF documents or a mix of databases and, and just a bunch of data in different places. So what I, what I, myself, and my team, what we found basically is one of the things is effectively getting, you know, uh, this, this kind of two phases. So typically in a situation where you're working with chat history, so that means the user has been having a back and forth with the model. You need to have a way to speed up the process for the model to both take the chat history as context and then answer the follow-up question. That's why when you use chat GPT, sometimes if you use it maybe more than five, six, seven interactions and you ask it what the first question you asked was, it's not going to remember what you said. And that's because they programmed it to work in a way where this kind of this memory loss so that can slow down the process if you're trying to take in all the chat history when the user asks a question so one of the strategies around that is sometimes we would use the the, the turbo so we'd use turbo to basically take the chat history convert the chat history into a standalone question so we take the question the user asked and then the chat history we ask the model to convert both of them into a standalone question. And then we take that standalone question and use a more powerful model to generate a response. So that powerful model could be a GPT-4, for example. So this is an example of effectively combining two different models, one where it's a smaller, faster model for a task that is not the ultimate generation, but it's the step to create the standalone question. And then the second part would be the the actual final generation with, with GPT-4. So that's one strategy. The second strategy is just traditional software development, which is just caching. Now, obviously, there's different ways to play this. The, the, the idea, effectively, is if a user's asking a type of question or variations of a question, you cache that question in the response. And so when the next user comes, you're able to put forward the same response instead of querying the the endpoint. So this is another way to save money. And there's different ways to play with this and so store in your database and, and do some sort of query checks as well. Another strategy is effectively trying to combine keyword search with your similarity or cosine similarity or, or use embeddings retrieval. So this is what is known as hybrid search. So your traditional keyword search obviously is is not looking at context. It's just a user looking for the keywords and then it's basically bringing back stuff based on that. And then semantic search is more contextual. So being able to utilize this too, because sometimes semantic search is not as quick as the keyword. So that, that hybrid approach also helps. Another thing too is in terms of the you know the, before you effectively create these embeddings, which, which these number of representations of your documents, which you basically put in this vect store and perform similarity search on, there's different ways to speed up 
the retrieval of the relevant documents to provide context. The, the whole idea behind chatting with data is a user asks a question, we go in the VEX store, we perform a similarity search, return K, similar documents, could be four, five, six. And these documents are passed as context and we generate a response. So we can play with that in terms of, oh, okay, you know, let's try to incre increase the relevancy of the relevant docs retrieved, but reduce the number of relevant docs retrieved. Because the more relevant documents you try and retrieve from the vector store, the slower the, the process is going to be. So in terms of optimizing for that is another thing. Also, there's, in the process prior to that, there is the, effectively, you want to think of it as like that chunking. So we're creating these chunks of your text before we embed them. And so these chunks can take different character sizes or token sizes. So if, if you reduce the character size and token size, but also able to maintain context, then when retrieval comes again, it's not like you're retrieving a chunk or chunks that are 2,000 characters, 5,000, 10,000 characters. Maybe you're retrieving chunks that are 500 characters. And so again, that helps to speed things up again. But ultimately, I in our experience, it's very much a case of testing afterwards, after deployment, a lot of testing, a lot of getting data sets, seeing what the costs are, and you just keep optimizing that way. That's what we found, you know, in the long run, you know, kind of works best is, is that kind of constant testing and experimentation, seeing what the most common questions the users ask, and just basically, you just keep iterating until you, you know, get very good performance. Those are great tips. And yeah, of course, everybody has their own specific use case where you have to evaluate each one of those you, you need to take or would work best for their situation. I think, Sai, you also built a lot of models recently using Shakudo. I was wondering your thoughts on this also, how to actually build these models in a faster and more cost-effective way and perhaps taking a little bit more of like the open source models angle right now? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. So from the open source models perspective, I think like whenever the, I mean, you are unable, the prompt logic is very tough. So even GPT-4 can't understand the logic or if the data can't be sent to open AI. So I think we can take the open source route and we can fine tune it so that like the, Effectively, if you fine-tune it on your training data, you are reducing the prompt logic as well. You don't need to add that logic or like which you add in the prompt. And I think I want to add this one more point is like once you fine-tune or you finally need to host it, host the model for production. So I think having a good inference engine is very useful for this. And there's like interesting research going on in this area. And I think like the hugging phase text generation interface is very powerful for this. And also like recently I came across this technique called like paged attention from the UC Berkeley's team who built the Vicuna model as well. It was like, I tried it out and like, it was giving much more better throughput compared to general like hugging, if you use hugging face pipelines with like static batching of the inputs. So yeah, these are some of the advancements I saw and I think, yeah, like hosting them in production is like quite important as well when 
it's for open source models. Yeah, that's my take on this. Yeah, thank you so much. And Shubham, if you have any thoughts on this as well, how to build faster and then cheaper with LLMs. And if you want to also dive a little bit deeper into the next question, which is open source versus private LLMs, feel free to do so and share your take on, on it for us. Sure. When it comes to building faster, I recently came across this tool that is or library that is built on top of Langchain. And when I experimented with it, I realized like it really helps you to build and get the POCs out really quick and really fast. It's called Embed Chain. It's built on top of Langchain and it abstracts almost all the concepts concepts that Mayo was explaining. Because if you, if you know Python, if you understand vector database, if you understand chunking, embedding, then Langchain, of course, makes a lot of sense. But if you don't know all of that, and if you just want to build a quick and dirty prototype for chatbot, for your client, for a company, and just want to showcase it, so this framework that's also pinned in the street, it lets you build chatbot using OpenAI's EDA endpoint, which is basically an embedding endpoint <clears throat> in almost like 10 to 15 lines of Python code. And it works with like online data and offline data. So you can upload offline documents if you have, you can upload text, PDF, even you can just point it to and a link to a YouTube video or any online link to an article, and all those things. So it abstracts the concept of indexing and querying, which are like two, two key concepts when it comes to building a chatbot. Automatically uses a vector database. So once you put all of these, it divides it into chunks, creates it, then creates embeddings out of it and automatically indexes it then you can just query out of it. So it's really helpful when you want to build a quick prototype. Then coming to the open source in proprietary deba debate. So there's a lot of factors that goes into consideration. What your use case is, what your budget is, what's the timeline you're looking at. If you want to get something out very quick, the easiest way is just is to just use existing endpoints, be it OpenAI or be it Anthropic and just get the product out if that's the focus. But if you want to, if you have the resources when I say resources, the computing power and the bandwidth, the engineers to build fine-tuned models, then open source makes more sense. If your data is more specific to your organizations, it has jargon, then fine-tuning makes sense. So those those are some key considerations. And the biggest one is the cost of compute. Like, do you have the hardware that is required to fine-tune those models? All of those things goes into consideration. Yeah, and, and I would like to hear thoughts from other speakers as well. How do they go about deciding open source, or deciding between open source or proprietary when they build a solution or when they do something for client or their customers? Yeah, me too, actually. I think who wants to go next on this one on the open source versus proprietary LLMs discussion? I can just pick one, but I'll let you guys raise raise your go ahead, Mayo. I know that you're from your mic. Yeah, yeah. I love what Shabam said. What I will say is performance isn't exactly anywhere close, at least from <laughs> from what I've tested 
it's it's good we're getting there right I, I mean i see a lot of new models open source models you know every day you know they're working really hard to you know get some sort of parity but at the end of the day if you're providing a service for a client they want the they want the best they typically want the best kind of outcome and if you go down the fine-tuning route you're probably going to need thousands of, of of examples and data set in your data set to to fine-tune anything from these open source models that's that's good that's good enough whether the client is going to be able to provide that or how you want to generate that is a completely different story i typically tell clients to start off with obviously OpenAI, then the, the objections of data privacy i show them that the OpenAI's privacy policy and i also ask the question of well if you're comfortable with microsoft and azure why are you not comfortable with OpenAI? But there are use cases where, for example, in law, or sometimes you have European jurisdiction restrictions in terms of data, leave in particular parts of Europe, where it is understandable that the open source model is the only solution. Another thing, too, for the client to take into account is the cost of hosting. How much is it going to cost to host the model? That's something else they may not have thought about ahead of time so it's getting better but it's it's nowhere near as good as you know the close solutions and i saw samo basically make a tweet essentially suggesting that that gap is probably going to get wider over time but the open source solutions will get better it's just that by the time they're probably as good as maybe a gpt 3.5 the equivalent close solution is probably going to be you know a thousand times better or something crazy like that so that's that's my take on that. Yeah, that's an interesting take for sure. I think overall open source does seem to, you know, a lot of people are looking at it. A lot of people are trying to, to use it. So it, it does look like with time they will catch up. It looks like it's already happening, in my opinion. I was wondering, what do you think, Leo, about this particular discussion? I think for, for us, we generally kind of lean toward similar sentiment toward delivering the best experience for the end users. However, I think there's another factor that we have to balance in here. So it's, it's much like any sort of buy or build decisions that you have to make for, you know, within this industry in general is that, as I kind of touched on, for instance, risk thinking, we already have quite a bit of valuable proprietary data, as well as models and algorithms. So the the balance is that whether the particular use case on leveraging the LLM or proprietary LLM would touch or kind of suck in the our proprietary trade secrets, basically. So if the answer is yes, then we will have to tread very carefully on determining various factors, technically as well as legally. Fortunately, the first, the very first use case that we touched on only touches on you know, exposing already aggregated, already analyzed data 
and visualizations to GPT model. So it does not really expose much of our proprietary trade secrets. But if the answer is yes, then even if the, the quality is not as great, we would probably still try to make an effort to build based on a open source model, much like the peel, peeling the onion strategy that, you know, how we implement LM features, based features. So I think that's pretty much the, the essence of how we consider between open source and proprietary. And I think we are going to actually have a joint effort with you guys with, between Risk Thinking and Shakuda to actually add in potentially fine-tuned or not even fine-tuned, but prompt-engineered open source models to throw that into the, the benchmark arena that we recently did against our UI user experience use case. So I'm eager to learn, actually, on that front. That's amazing. And that's actually a great touch point. And one of the reasons people are going more towards open source is data security, data privacy, and making sure that you know exactly what's happening with the stuff you're putting into the model. I I know that Shabham, you need to leave soon. So if you want to give any last shout out, I'll be closing those spaces soon too. But any final thoughts you'd like to share? Yep, just a final plug on open source. Thank you, Shabrina, for the space, and thank you, everyone, for listening in. So open source, the biggest driver of open source is the data privacy and the control on the model, and that's why a lot of enterprises are still interested in open source. They do not want to send their data to OpenAI, Microsoft, Anthropic, because every research lab that you see today, be it OpenAI, be it Anthropic, be it Inflection, is related to, is somehow linked to a big tech and nobody wants to send their data uh, all through their APIs. So all these enterprises are still looking to have open source solution or open source model deployed in their company and want to use that. That's, that's the biggest enabler, data privacy and control. And I would also encourage every one of you listening here, if you're using OpenAI, if you're using large language model, I would, I would encourage you to explore the open source models, play with it, feedback, be a part of that community. Because in the end, we would want to live in a world where all of us can run and deploy our own language model. We do not want to depend on a single centralized entity. We want to have a decentralized control where all of us can have their own language model. All of us can have that control and that freedom to do whatever we want. OpenAI cannot decide when to plug or when to turn off the switch. And then you cannot just use ChatGPT. At that time, we need to have our own ChatGPT running on our own machines, our own servers. So that's what open source enables. And that's why it is so powerful. So it's, it's, it's high time that we should participate more in those efforts and strengthen that community. With that, I, I would take a leave. And thank you so much for listening in. Thank you, Shabrina. Thank, thank you, you so much, Shabam. Amazing thoughts. And, and thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Everyone, make sure to check his profile out and his, his newsletter. Great stuff. <laughs> I think a last person to share the, their thoughts here also on open source 
and for Prioritary Elements. Sai, let me know what you think. What are your thoughts? What's your take on it? And after that, we're closing the space. So if anyone in the audience wants to ask any questions, now is the time. Either drop it on the comments or request to speak. Sai, go ahead. Yeah, I think like they are really powerful. And if you want to get started and also have a product out of it, they're really powerful. And also, I think Azure is also providing some data security where like they don't, they mention that they'll be not using your data or they, they won't be looking at your data for fine tuning or training the model. So that will be like very good if property LLMs do that. And I think, yeah, like right now, open source LLMs are like slowly catching up. And I'm not sure if there's an LLM, open source LLM with like HF implemented in it. So I'm waiting to see something like that. Yeah, that's, I can, I can end the discussion with that. Thank you, Sai. Thank you for everyone here on the audience as well, the speakers. It was a pleasure. And with that, we close this Big Data Small Talk. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, everyone. See you. Thank you. Thanks. Take it easy. Thank you.